Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another podcast episode. I'll be the first to admit that the specialty or the rabbit hole of tonight's guest I have no idea about, but I recognize that it takes a lot of movement expertise and a lot of training to do it correctly without getting hurt. He was recommended to us by Menachem Brody, who is an endurance coach who's in Tel Aviv by way of Pittsburgh. I'm really happy to have Miguel Aragoncillo with us from outside the Boston area, if I'm correct, just back from Minnesota. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I just got back from Minnesota from a conference that I attended. Uh, pretty cool. Um, yeah, I definitely have worked with dancers, and I work with a lot of individuals, like we were talking about off-air, um, That individuals that want to essentially just move to get better or move for performance or what have you. And I know the first question that I always like to ask people that I interview for Moving to Live, if you're wearing a, a t-shirt uh, with your business name on it, or you happen to mention to somebody that I'm a, you know, I'm a movement coach or I'm a trainer, and they say, well, give me the 30 seconds. What is it exactly that you do? And I've had a variety of answers, and I think that's always a really interesting question to have answered by people that I interview. Uh, it, it's always interesting for me to answer that. It's like the cocktail party kind of answer. Um, comes down to saying, yeah, I'm a personal trainer, but sometimes the individuals I work with just happen to be getting paid a lot more for the things they're doing uh, because it pertains to movement versus individuals that just want to, you know, maybe lose weight or they just want their hip to stop hurting, for example. Um, so I work with professional athletes in the setting I'm in right now, Crusty Sports Performance. I also have pers- my own personal training clients uh, on the private side, and I also have uh, online training clients that I work with, uh, obviously online. Um, and yeah, I do a couple different speaking things throughout the year, along with uh, doing different writing gigs as well. I think what's interesting, I was looking at your website before giving you a call, and your comment is probably a little bit different than what a lot of other personal trainers or movement people would say, and I think it's probably along the lines with me. Uh, you say, I wasn't a very good athlete. 
So my, yeah. my question for that is, how did you get into this field? If you weren't a very good athlete, were you active as a kid, as a high school student, or did you get older and say, well, those who can't teach and those who can't teach consult? It's not even that. I was more stubborn. I was really stubborn. Um, I tried playing sports, really. Uh, I tried keeping up with my friends. They were really good at soccer, friends that were good at basketball. Um, I was always the guy that was like picked last for everything because I, was, uh, I just wasn't tall enough, wasn't this, wasn't that. Um, for some reason, I, I would always like have a bad ankle roll but still try to play or some lack of coordination. And I was still trying to keep on going because what else would I do? Um, if not that, then I'd just be playing video games, which I also did. But long story short, uh, I mean, I was very stubborn. Uh, I tell the story of when I was about 12, I just realized that like 12, 13, 7th, 8th grade was about that time when you, you like start to realize, okay, next year is when people start throwing a baseball really fast. You have to like really be coordinated in terms of baseball. Soccer, you have to run a lot, period. I hated running. Um, basketball, I've been 5'4 my whole life since I was like 14, excuse me. Not my whole life, obviously. But I stopped growing when I was 14. And uh, my Instagram and Twitter handle reflect that. So Muggsy Bogues is one of my favorite players because he was – I think they're still the shortest basketball player professionally, Charlotte Hornets. Um, not the Charlotte Bobcats turned to the Hornets, but the original Charlotte Hornets. And then it's Migsy Bogues is my my uh, username. So it reflects those items. So I still keep it in the back of my head that the lack of coordination, it just meant I had to practice a lot more than some of my contemporaries because of whatever reason. So how did you decide when you went to college or did you decide when you went to college, I'm going to major in some sort of movement thing? Oh, it's even in, in high school, um, I had continuation from that. So 14, I just, I didn't make any teams. So what I did was, uh, I was actually into the arts quite a bit. I was in musicals. I was in, uh, all the plays and things along those lines. And I was, I, I was not in choir or anything like that, but I did play instruments. Uh, eventually I joined the marching band. And, and uh, you know, lack of uh, knowledge. Some individuals might say, wow, you know, one time at band camp, so on and so forth. But what, what really happens is when you carry uh, a 40, 50-pound drum in front of you and you have to walk around with that for hours at a time practicing uh, during summer uh, and then all the way throughout the winter, uh, you start to realize that, wow, this is actually pretty physical. Um, and then on top of that, right around 14, 15, I started dancing because – here are the things that were really interesting that I, I keep on emphasizing to all the youth athletes that I work with. When you know, you're 12, 13, you start getting all these rules being imposed upon you. You have a coach telling you what to do. You have a sports-specific guy telling you what to do. You have all these parents telling you what to do, so on and so forth. You have siblings, friends you got to keep up with. So I just said, you know, screw all that. So at the end of the day, I said, I'm going to start dancing. Now, this wasn't out of like pure joy of dancing, but it was more out of like, man, I need to do something. This is getting annoying. I can't do anything. So I really just practiced a lot. And the cool thing was I didn't have to have anyone tell me to practice. I just did it on my own. I didn't have to have any rules. I just did it on my own. Uh, there were no rules in dancing, and there still aren't. Um, and that's something I keep on bringing it up uh, throughout this whole thing, hopefully. Um, so I had the autonomy to say to myself, I had the self-awareness to say, you know, I could do this dancing thing because one, nobody else around me was dancing. So I couldn't like look up to anybody dancing because I didn't really have anyone to look up to um, other than my cousins that they were dancing with me and they were older. So I didn't really have a good comparison, you know, one-on-one uh, -on -one or what have you. 
I think that's I find that very interesting because my idea of dancing is moving around at a wedding and not very well. So <laughs> what what was it? What was it uh, that said? You know, I I mean, obviously you said I need to do something, but what was it that you said dancing? Did you see something on television on yeah. on YouTube and say that looks like pretty cool? This was before YouTube. Uh, if if this dates me, um, uh, there was the lack of internet was um, very very visible during this time because the most that there was in terms of online, um, just the online world of dancing, there was a uh, it was www.breakdance.com and it was this yellow website that just had text, excuse me, and it just had text of here are the steps of how you do it and you had to read the text to do the thing. And if you can imagine, like, all right, now you're going to shoot an arrow. This is the steps for it. It's like, all right, you have no idea if you're doing it right. And then on top of that, you don't have cell phones. So you have to, like, print out these instructions. And then you're playing Twister to something you have no idea what it even looks like, except for stuff you've seen on TV, uh, on MTV and VH1 and all these things. And uh, it was really, uh, if I can say, it was it was kind of encouraged by some other individuals. It was encouraged by, actually, uh, during this time, there was a creative arts uh, program in my high school and the creative arts program was for one part of the semester you have a dance class the dance class was uh it was taught by the high school football coach and he was a he was a kind of coach that was he was everybody's coach not just like just the football coach he was everyone's coach you know when, when you say hey coach his name is coach black hey coach uh you know you're talking to him because he was your coach too even if you didn't play football. So he actually uh, encouraged me. He said, yeah, man, do whatever you want. Uh, you know, just at the end of the day, you just have to participate. And then, you know, that further spawned the thought process of, again, there are no rules because you decide the rules. At the end of the day, you just have to participate. So I was like, whoa, what is this? Like, I get, I, you know, maybe it's brownie points at this point, but it, was, it wasn't necessarily for a medal, but it was like just that time. It was like a right time, right place kind of thing, so. Was it possibly for bragging rights with your friends? Look what I can do. And they would say, look what I could do or not really. No, I was also still bad at dancing. That's <laughs> the, like nobody starts out really good at one thing. Like that's the thing I, I, I can't emphasize to anyone enough. Like nobody starts out in this game doing anything well. Like nobody thinks or imagines, okay, a baby is going to be walking really good right out of the gates. How many times does the baby fall? How many times a baby, you know, bump its whatever, such and such into, you know, the cabinet by accident, obviously. Um, and all these things kind of propagate because it's like, okay, now I'm going to start dancing with no instruction. I have nobody guiding me. So I'm my own instructor. So that's the cool part. Um, nobody really taught me. So besides me trying to copy stuff I see on TV, I had to record this on literally VHS at this time. This was like <laughs> when all this was just like right after all the boy band stuff, like NSYNC. All these guys were like dancing and all these things. I was trying to like memorize the moves, and then like VH1 hit and you know MTV hit with all these different. Uh, I think it was. I forget what exactly the video was, but the video was a guy dancing on a cardboard box, and I was like just astounded. Like he was by himself, and that was it. And I was like, all right, if he's doing it, then I can do it. That was kind of the thought process I had in high school. It sounds like what you're saying, the no rules to do what you want to do, is very similar to – I've had the good fortune to interview for my other podcast, Fit Lab PGH, a couple of guys who skateboard. And a couple of them are late 30s, early 40s, and they're still skateboarding. And they said that's what got them into it is there were – I mean, other than not falling off the board, that's Physics. what it was. 
that's a physics. You know, you're, you're bound by the physics, is what it is. So it sounds like uh, what you were doing is very similar to they. They were skateboarding, and in a different time, in a different place, with a different opportunity, you might have ended up with skateboarding. Yeah, that's it. And you know, I just happened to be watching these things, and it, it's like a, an amalgamation of two or different, two or three different things. It was like that that creative arts dance class, uh, and I'm sure my coach has uh, the VHS tape of my final somewhere. Uh, I would love to see that at this point. Um, and on top of that, the the MTV kind of was at the, the forefront. And my cousins, my brother, we were all, not exactly dancing, but there was some some video games out at the time that were fairly active. I don't know if you remember those kind of things that you would be like dancing on a pad. So all these kind of things like propelled me to be like, yeah, let's go. Let's go and dance. I think it's also interesting that the football coach taught a dance class. I'm sure that's very unusual in most high schools. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he danced necessarily himself, but you know he was a really, really good guy to help encourage other people to do what they needed to do. So you finish high school, you have to move on and do something else. At what point did you realize you probably weren't going to be good enough to make your living as a b boy? I thought I did actually. That's a that's a funny part. Um, so it's going to sound a little bit interesting some people go to the colleges for academics sports maybe they want to uh, be with a significant other i had none of those i chose my school because it was right in the heart of philadelphia right in the thick of things and i was like uh, i was coming right out of the suburbs of new jersey um it's about 20 minutes right out of philly not too far actually 20 30 minutes depending on where you are and I said, I want to, I know I'm going to find other dancers. The hard part was I was like doing three, four years on dancing already at this point. I was, you know, fairly active in terms of understanding. My brother was a DJ, college, high school. So he kind of introduced me to a lot of different music. Again, there's all these things kind of like pushing me to do these things in terms of creativity, et cetera. Um, and it's just it's kind of uh, interesting to just reflect on these things. And I said to myself, I'm going to find some other dancers to work with or at least uh, be around, surround myself with the, the culture because I remember about 17, 18, I said to my mom, all right, can you drop me off in Philadelphia, in the middle of Philadelphia uh, on like a Saturday afternoon night so I can enter uh, what they call them, a, a break dancing jam or b-boy jam, like an event where everybody just comes in and battles. I, didn't, I was not good, but I was like, I'm going to do something I'm kind of afraid of and then from there, I just kind of like push me further further to go into Philly. So uh, from there, I kept on saying to myself, I'm going to choose my school based on who I can surround myself with, the environment with, and then try to learn the science around dance. Because it really wasn't, I mean, in my head, there wasn't that much. I tried doing some searching. There was like formal dance schools like ballet and classical, contemporary, etc. But there was nobody saying, okay, these are the things that happens when you do this thing, do, doing your dance. There was no like movement science now. Now there is, but previously I didn't find that much. So what did you major in in college that allowed you to begin to do that and get to where you are now? Kinesiology, study of human movement. Um, I was actually two years in athletic training um, because, you know, everybody in dancing gets injured. So I was like, all right, maybe I can help myself before I get injured, I'll you know do all the pre-prevention uh, type items, and then from there, uh, it was actually interesting because uh, 
Temple's program for athletic training was actually fairly rigorous. If I'm correct, I could be wrong. At the time, it was freshman year. You had to do freshman year, fall semester, like the very first thing. You had to do 150 hours volunteer, spring 150. Sophomore was 200 hours volunteer, 200, and such so on and so forth. So it's, it's fairly intensive in terms of volunteer work that you had to do on top of your normal pro, uh, on top of your normal academia. Yeah, I'm a little older than you. I went to Gettysburg, and I had to do over the course of four years, I think, 1,800 hours. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. And then, and then people were saying by senior year, they just lived in the training room. And I, I think it says something at this point in time. I, I now say I'm an exercise physiologist who happens to still have the athletic training certification. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you go to Temple, you major. Did you ever have the idea that you could make a living as a break dancer or was this all just, you did this cause you liked to move and you enjoyed doing it. So eventually I, um, I find some individuals like, uh, that, that do enjoy dancing. I, uh, surrounded myself with these individuals. It's a fun time. I definitely look fondly on those times, um, several years ago at this point, And, um, I'm, I already forgot the, the question specifically that you asked, but the, the things that really got me going in terms of, uh, going towards these concepts of improving myself in terms of uh, getting better at my dance, I surrounded myself with these individuals. And then from there, it's like, wow, these guys are, they're going places and meeting. They, they travel, maybe not internationally at this point, maybe a couple of my friends eventually do, but they travel up and down the East coast. Some travel across the coast to the uh, uh, West coast, California. Um, and I'm just I'm like, wow, I seen these guys eventually. I'm like, wow, these guys were just on TV and I'm like hanging out with them on a Thursday night. And it's that kind of like camaraderie. You're just hanging out. And even if I don't get to go to the clubs with them because I wasn't that old at the time, I, I can still have like the question back and forth and still see how they dance. So I did think at some point like, okay, if I put enough time in, I'm going to eventually make some money doing this in some, in some way. I don't know how. Is this, this I'm assuming the way you're doing it now probably is not the way that you imagine doing it, working training them or is it? No. No, it's not. Um, I, I'd say I'm not a hundred percent of my income is definitely not from training dancers. Um, it's it's a little bit interesting, uh, but from uh, I'll just say in a very nice way that uh, not every dancer has the funds to just uh, train with me. I guess you could say in this capacity. So in some some ways, I've put out a lot of content for free just for dancers. I've worked with dancers for free pro bono just to be like, hey, you know, I know you're going places. You got to do some in terms of your next competition. Here you go. Just this is what you need to do. Do this for now. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, the, in our in the b-boy culture, there's a lot of giving back to the culture. Um, and, and, you know, everybody eventually does need to make some type of living doing it. So I said to myself, OK, even if I'm not training 100 percent dancers right now, which I would love to start doing, you know, if, if anybody is listening, I would love to work with you. <laughs> the at the end of the day, I, know, I recognize that everyone should have the ability to to move, we'll just say freely and without some type of restriction or pain, et cetera. And not just dancers. So I recognized that early on as well. And I said to myself, okay, maybe I can work with whomever and then also work with dancers as well. As well. A couple of questions that that brings to mind is, first of all, do you still dance? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
it's a little bit different because I weigh heck of a lot more than the average dancer now in terms of not just like, oh, I'm fat, but um, in the context of I've lifted so much more in terms of the average dancer. And I've I've actually started taking up powerlifting. Um, yeah, I just I, I weigh maybe about 40 pounds more than the average individual. My height, my size would be in, uh, we'll say, the contemporary individual who's competing on an international level. Knowing what you know now, going back to when you were 12 or 13, what would you have done differently in your, I don't know if you want to call it training or exploring of becoming a B-boy? You know, it's it's not even like doing something different. I don't even know how I would answer that because uh, that's that's like me trying to convince myself to not be so stubborn. <laughs> That's that's the hard part. It's not like oh, here's the one thing you you got to do differently, but it's like me looking down on myself and saying, "Yo, you're you're really stubborn, and you just keep on like banging your head against this wall." If I could maybe say, "Hey, try this," maybe I'll like maybe I'll work with myself as a younger you know part, maybe like a Marty McFly kind of thing, and just like nudge yourself in the right direction in terms of not getting hurt, you know that kind of thing. That that's more along the lines of what I w- was going with because yeah, I know yeah, yeah. I, I know yeah. thinking back to my high school career and some of the things I did in soccer and basketball, it's like I was an idiot, <laughs> the, the, and I didn't know I didn't know any better. Right, I think there's one really big uh, movement that I just have in the back of my head in terms of just like a painful kind of physical trauma uh was i pulled my groin really really hard and and very it was debilitating because it like changed the way i walked for like four months straight because i was doing uh if anyone has followed gymnastics there's this movement called a flare Uh, maybe some individuals uh practice it on a pommel horse or what have you uh, or mushroom whatever the words are um but I was practicing this because you know I saw my friends do it. I was like, all right, I can do this. I know I can. I know I can. And the mentality at the time was uh, push harder because if it's not more intensity, more effort. And not saying – sometimes it is more intensity, more effort. But at the time, I just wasn't strong enough. Um, so you know, obviously, if I could strengthen my body just a little bit, that would be one direction. The other direction would be – um, to teach some of these rehabilit- uh, rehabilitative kind of methods, because you know those four months that that was those were those were agonizing months. So fast forwarding a little bit, you graduate from college with your kinesiology degree, <laughs> and I know everybody that last semester of college they're either thinking, do I go to grad school? Do I have to get a job? What do I need to do? Because you're kind of protected for the four years in college because you have that set schedule with classes and whatever else you do. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I know in my case, I once asked my dad, I said, you know, what would happen if I wanted to go a fifth year? And he goes, oh, you'd pay for it yourself. So that was my encouragement to finish. So what did you, what did you do when you graduated? It's actually funny. Most of my, uh, uh, peers, uh, for whatever reason, I still don't understand it. Um, I haven't asked them. I just, I just continued on my own path was they, the program in some capacities had a little bit of overflow into the said fifth year because there was just like, you know, maybe too many courses or they didn't get into one course specifically. What I did was I took summer classes like starting my sophomore year, so that would never happen. I actually finished three and a half years, but I extended into that last semester. I could have walked up semester early basically because um, I knew I wanted to work right afterwards. I didn't have the capacity in my head both mentally, physically, and financially to do another fifth year. So I said to myself, I'm going to work right after school. So that was kind of set. And what did you do? 
personal training. Uh, I was at a medical fitness facility in southern South, South Jersey. Uh, medical fitness facility meaning uh, the hospital would uh, was attached to the fitness facility. So if there was any orthopedic individuals, patients, cardiac rehab individuals, etc., uh, metabolic diseases, they would be sent to us as trainers. So at the time, that was fairly intimidating because you go from trying to be, you know, dancing and all these things, and I myself am hurt and such, and I'm always trying to do some crazy thing uh, in terms of extreme movements, and then, you know, I'm working with an individual that had uh, rotator cuff injury or they have frozen shoulder or some degenerative kind of disease, uh, excuse me, uh, degenerative kind of orthopedic issue is what I meant. Um, and it's just like, wow, I know nothing period. And I know some people when they get in that setting, either it's like, I like this, this is, this is a lot of fun. I can learn a lot from this. And I recognize that I really, uh, empathize with these people. And this is something that I want to stay with. Clearly, from what you're doing now, that yeah. wasn't the case. Did you hate it or just realize that, you know, this isn't exactly what I want to spend my time professionally with? Yeah, no, I never even thought about those options in terms of like stopping. Um, I just equated stopping to quitting. And I knew, I mean, if, if anything, the things I said earlier kind of ring true. I, I'm definitely not somebody who just gives up. Um, so, if anything, I learned how to relate to individuals. Uh, that were not like me because not everyone is like me at all. Like uh, just from my background and things I've learned, the things I've done. So I just learned how to pivot. If I think that was something that I was really uh, in the forefront of my mind, I learned how to pivot my skill set. I learned how to p- pivot. Uh, maybe not uh, like maybe not like judo pivot and pushing, but maybe just like skill set wise, like pivot what I know in terms of movement, in terms of dancing and say, maybe this movement might be better or try this movement or another thought process is, um, you know, I, I, this is also a big thing at the time when I was younger. So I said to myself, I taught myself how to play drums. I taught myself how to play clarinet. I had a teacher, but you know, I obviously have to do your own due diligence. Um, I taught myself to do a lot of things. I had kind of this, like this self-awareness or this autonomy. So I said to myself, if I have these individuals who have such and such problems, we'll call it, I can do my own research and then I can Google things. Like I knew how to Google from a young age. I was, you know, searching was like a part of my thought process. And from there, I'm just like, okay, I can do this. So I said to myself, I'm going to stay up reading this and that and such and such. And from there, you know, it's, it's not really a thought, a far off thought from I can teach myself whatever I want. I think that's an invaluable skill to have. And whether you picked up it for your schooling or your parents, I think that's something that is, is so many people don't recognize. Uh, I interviewed in an earlier podcast, Dr. Gary Chimes. He refers to it as Dr. Google. And he likes his patients to Google before they come to see him because a lot of times they're better informed and they have a better ability to answer questions that he asks them. Yeah, that's uh, that's huge. Um, definitely a big thing. Uh, although nowadays it's a little bit different in terms of WebMD and such, but um, at, at least you do it some some type of searching in terms of your symptoms. It's uh, you know the, the more knowledge, sometimes the better you off you are. I've often found with the, some of my clients, I'm for, fortunate or unfortunate enough that they're very highly educated. I've got a couple of engineers, and I made the mistake of uh, when I first started working with one of them of talking about the serape effect and the wrapping effect of muscles. 
I just, I just kind of threw it out. Oh, that's the Serape effect and moved on. And the next session he came back and he'd gotten on PubMed and read a couple of articles and wanted to talk about it. It's like, oh crap, I need to go back and uh, refresh my memory from biomechanics classes. <laughs> Watch the things we say to everybody. Yes, I, I, I was, it was meant to be a throwaway line and in actuality in the long term, it turned out to be a really good conversation and it really helped me kind of like you learned that, oh, I can kind of pivot what I realized is he's an engineer and he looks at the body as a system, which it is a system, but it doesn't always respond the way a machine does. So we could have some really interesting conversations that really, I think, enhanced my knowledge of what I do. Definitely. Definitely. That's always interesting talking with clients who you know, are very highly intelligent in, in one aspect of a field and they just pick up something else from another field altogether. It's, it's always interesting to have these conversations with other individuals not in our industry. I agree. We're fortunate enough we've been talking with Miguel Aragoncillo. Did I get that pronunciation right? Oh, yeah. I'm working on that. He gave us a story about how he started out as, like me, a not very good athlete in high school and found an activity that he was good with rather than sticking strictly with video games. I think there's a lot of kids today that could kind of take that to heart. We're going to come back in two weeks and kind of find out how he progressed professionally from working in a medical-supported fitness facility to where he is today and hopefully find out a little bit more about his work with B-Boys because that's something, although I know nothing about, I think it's interesting because having seen now on YouTube versus on television and MTV like you did, there's a heck of a lot of athletic performance involved there and you kind of wonder how they get to that point. So Miguel, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live for part one and telling us your story. I'm looking forward to coming back with talking with you in two weeks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore mov2liv. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.